This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. How do imperial legacies shape present-day academia and knowledge production? How are the colonial past and obligations arising from it debated today? And what role do they play in political relations within Europe and in Europe's relations with the non-European world? These are some of the questions we seek to address in our new eight lecture series in cooperation with the Fritz Thyssen Foundation on science, knowledge and the legacy of empire. This podcast episode is a recording of the series' inaugural lecture given by Sumati Ramaswamy, James B. Duke Professor of History at Duke University, under the title Imagining India in the Empire of Science. Drawing inspiration from Edward Said's concept of imperialism as geographical violence, Sumati Ramaswamy delves into the ways in which various scientific disciplines, like geography and cartography, played a role in shaping how India was perceived and understood during the two centuries of British colonial rule. In other words, how they, quote, worlded, unquote, India. Her lecture uncovers a conflicted relationship between science on the one hand and art and imagination on the other, entwined in the process of, quote, worlding, unquote, India. Thank you so much, Christina, for that warm introduction. Thank you so much. And thanks so much to the wonderful team at the German Historical Institute and my friends and colleagues at the Thusen Foundation. And in particular, I also wanted to thank Professor Indra Gupta. Over the last year and a half, has it been, Indra, since we've been talking about this lecture and working in dialogue with you, has been a real pleasure. And thank you all for coming this evening. It is really an honor to actually get this new series series off the ground, and I so appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. So the central premise of my presentation is that the long colonial conquest of India was in essence its conscription into the empire of geography, centered around its principal protagonist, modern earth, imagined and visualized as an inanimate but perfect sphere impersonally and indifferently twirling about its own axis as it silently orbits in a heliocentric solar system. Like most other conquests, this too was a messy affair with many unanticipated and unpredicted twists and turns, but it was a conquest that did happen. And with considerable amount of native collaboration and consent, although not also without considerable resistance and writing back, which have left their mark, as we will see. It is also a matter of great consequence to the outcomes of this conquest that it was enabled by disciplines and knowledge practices that underwrite what we today call the earth sciences, but which in their own time went by other names as well, such as geology, natural history, paleontology, natural philosophy, archaeology, 
and most especially geography and its principal technology for conducting its business, scientific map making. Starting from the later 18th century, the procedures and protocols of these globalizing sciences have overwhelmingly resulted in the intellectual capture of our planet and the assertion of discursive authority over it as it came to be measured, mathematized, and mapped as triangulation by triangulation, war by war, treaty by treaty, the alignment of map and power proceeded in Benedict Anderson's memorable words. As an outcome of what Donna Haraway describes as the God trick of seeing everything from nowhere, few places have been left unknown, few territories uncharted. Modern Earth has emerged from the systematic and sustained scientific scrutiny as a planet placed at man's disposal with a place for everything and everything in its place. India is one such place that began to be placed in a specific manner on modern Earth's surface from at least the 1780s with the help of a particular configuration of useful knowledges, geography among them the foremost to be deployed in the service of conquest and empire building and consolidation. This is not altogether surprising that because given that for the colonial state, ruling the country began with knowing the lay of the land, if for nothing else than to monetize it for underwriting the costs of empire. Listen to no lesser personage than Lord Curzon, likely the most lordly of all viceroys of British India, who in May 1912 spoke eloquently at the annual dinner of the Royal Geographical Society, the bastion of the British and Imperial Geographical Enterprise, headquartered not too far away from here. He recalled how when he was a young boy, we were all touched by the latent spirit and romance of geography. Imperiously, but revealingly claiming geography as our science, he declared to his distinguished gathering of fellow Britons, quote, without the geographers, the British empire would never have been created. Everywhere throughout the world, you will still find them exploring and surveying known unknown lands, demarcating boundaries, planting the seeds of commerce, pacifying savage tribes, and extending the frontiers of civilization, end quote. Insisting that, quote, geography is one of the first and foremost of the sciences, that it is part of the equipment that is necessary for a proper conception of citizenship, and that it is an indispensable adjunct to the production of public man, Curzon concluded his speech on a happy note, quote, we rejoice that the church and geography have for so many centuries marched hand in hand with the illumination of the dark places of the earth and in the diffusion of truth, scientific and divine. Curzon's joyous, indeed enchanted embrace of the collaboration between geography and empire with some help from the Christian church to illuminate the dark places of the earth has been the subject of much less celebratory scholarship in recent years, which has been dedicated to unraveling that science's thoroughgoing complicity in imperialism. 
as it forced colonies like India into the stranglehold of survey and the straitjacket of surveillance through a process that has been described by post-colonial theorist Gayatri Spivak as worlding, the forceful, even violent makeover of an uninscribed planet that we call Earth in the interest of capital and conquest. Geographies about power, observes Irish critical geographer Gerald Toll, who also insists very usefully that geography is not something already possessed by the Earth, but an active writing of the Earth. It is not a noun, but a verb, a geographing, an Earth writing. As Elena Delagnis iterates, writing the world means changing it. An awareness of the power of geography to produce and transform the world while ostensibly describing it is one of the most important developments of contemporary geographical thought. The discipline now stands stripped of the cloak of scientific objectivity and political innocence under which it went about conducting its invasive but lucrative work for two centuries and more of imperial rule across modern Earth and certainly in British India. So as early as 1784, William Jones, in his inaugural discourse to a learned assembly in Calcutta that came to be named the Asiatic Society, instructed his colleagues, quote, you will investigate whatever is rare in the stupendous fabric of nature. You will correct the geography of Asia by new observations and discoveries. Colonial earth writing was therefore a project of writing in the sense of correcting native errors and wrongs. Convinced as they were that Hindus as a rule were deficient in observation, that they lacked scientific curiosity, and that their religion, quote, is based on a system of physical error, so incompatible with the extension of scientific truth that in their language, the term geography is unknown, end quote. Many in the colonial establishment set out to rewrite the true geography of India, rescuing it from the fabulous and fanciful conceptions of the world embedded especially in the Sanskrit Puranas, which in words that have been repeated ad nauseum were caricatured as, quote, astronomy which would move laughter in girls at an English boarding school, history abounding with kings 30 feet high and reigns 30,000 years long, and geography made up of seas of butter and seas of treacle, end quote. The India of official colonial geography instead was an abstract, rational, mathematized place, a geocoded geobody, emptied of fanciful imagination and fabulous imagery, and a product of the hard work of empirical science, as the scholarship of a number of historians of cartography, such as Matthew Edney and Kapil Raj clearly shows. Correspondingly, colonial Indian geography textbooks, modeled as they were on 18th century British geographical traditions influenced by Locke and Hume, were relentlessly matter-of-fact and empirical. Quote, geography was a science of measurement and description, interrupted every now and then with unsystematic racialist assertion, in the words of the late historian Christopher Bailey. 
In particular, Bailey argues, the method of colonial geography as it found expression in such books, and contrary to what Curzon experienced as a boy growing up in England, was deliberately dry and untheoretical, an antidote to romance and imagination. Listen to missionary educator John Murdoch, who observed provocatively in 1885, quote, the different modes adopted by Hindus and Europeans in framing systems of geography are well worthy of notice. A Hindu without any investigations and sat down and wrote that the center of our universe consisted of an immense rock surrounded by concentric oceans of ghee, milk, and other fluids. To induce men to believe his account, he then pretended that it was inspired. Europeans, on the other hand, visited countries, measured distances, and after very careful investigation, wrote descriptions of the earth. Which is the more worthy of credit? End quote. In the regimes of what I have called pedagogic modernity, there was only one correct answer to this rhetorical question that Murdoch posed, and it found expression in novel objects, such as the geography textbook, almost the only source of scientific education that the native child received in colonial classrooms for much of the 19th century, and in cartographic objects such as the atlas, the map, the orrery, and the terraqueous globe. With the help of its principal agents, the eager expatriate, the zealous missionary, and also for sure, the educated native, the empire of geography, using the evangelism of modern cartography, and sometimes even overtly, the Christian God, went about its task of spreading the gospel of modern earth in schools and colleges across British India, as witnessed, for example, in the sprint from the early 20th century published by Pune's Chitrashala Press of a colonial classroom equipped with benches, a blackboard and wall maps, and a native teacher offering instruction in geography, perhaps, to young boys heeding him with apparent interest. The documentary and visual record of the colonial centuries confirms that there were indeed scattered sites of instruction across British India, such as the one pictured in this beautiful photograph from Bombay. But for the vast length and breadth of the country, such a space remained aspirational rather than real even by the end of colonial rule in 1947 reminding us that the empire of geography, like many other empires, was both fragile and incomplete, intentions notwithstanding. In the words of one administrator from 1817, many places, quote, the schoolhouse is an open shed. There are no maps, forms, chairs, tables, desks, or globes, or the usual apparatus of a school, or if any, they are of the rudest possible description a round earthen pot serves as a globe, end quote. Even in the absence of the school globe, the foundational terrestrial lessons of the rotundity of modern earth was taught with great ardor and enthusiasm with the help of any globular object at hand, such as the coconut, the orange, the wood apple, and the earthen pot, as a European scientific preoccupation with our planet's sphericity, 
became as well an Indian concern. As colonial rule gave way to rule by Indians, the nation state and especially its various pedagogic and administrative agencies also took up the course of the empire of geography, bolstered as well by various people science movements, which sought, quote, to popularize scientific knowledge among the masses, to develop a scientific outlook among the people, and to challenge the forces of supernaturalism, obscurantism, and superstition. Nonetheless, by no means was the conquest of India by the empire of geography and its installation on the surface of modern earth a sweeping success. Erupting in various nooks and corners along the edges and crevices, but occasionally even at the center, alternate scenarios of earth writing refused to give up altogether from relating to our planet without inspiration and imagination. Pushing back against some of the discipline's world-hungry claims, even while making strategic use of its findings, especially the map form, as we will see. The struggle over geography, Edward Said wisely noted many years ago, is not only about soldiers and cannons, but also about ideas, about forms, about images and imaginings. Encouraged by this observation, I now take up for consideration some such images and imaginings that remind us that for many Indians, although not all, empire's gift of science was indeed indispensable, but also inadequate and had to be radically supplemented by other knowledges, other memories and other forms. My analysis in this regard is also inspired by political philosopher Jane Bennett's important book, The Enchantment of Modern Life, published in 2001, in which she rightly asks us to come to terms as closely as possible with enchanting events and affects residing within or alongside scientific calculation, instrumental reason, secularism, or disciplinary power. Making an ethical argument for the need to pay attention to cultural practices that mark the marvelous erupting amid the everyday, she suggests that this would induce a more visionary and expansive mood from the one that would be present if the disenchantment story held the whole field. In her words, it is too hard to love a disenchanted world and to cultivate joyful attachment towards it. An ethic for a disenchanted world thus requires the exercise of imagination. For imagination energizes us with alternatives, with the power of the new and the startling and the wonderful. And so, following her injunction, I take stock of some marvelous placemaking imaginations that have erupted within some Indian provinces of the empire of geography that, for its votaries at least, reveal the power of the new, the startling, the wonderful, and more. So the first of these scenarios of alternate earth writing takes me offshore, quite literally, and outside the bounds of a peninsular India, neatly circumscribed by the oceans on all three sides, as visualized in many a scientific map of the subcontinent. I take you into this scenario through a map published in 1981 in Madras, now Chennai, entitled India in 30,000 BCE, Tamil Nadu. 
one of the numerous such maps published over the course of the last century. It shows a vast land to the south of peninsular India, whose western border extends to the modern island of Madagascar and its eastern boundary to modern day Australia. Its southern extent is left unspecified, but quite likely touched the Antarctic continent, a place that was becoming increasingly visible in Indian geopolitics and public imagination on the eve of India becoming a signatory in 1983 to the Antarctic Treaty. This extraterritorial landmass is suggestively named Submerged Tamil Nadu and is the Pandian Kingdom. Running through its center is the Meru Mountain, from which flows rivers through regions named Peruvalanadu and Olinadu, populated by cities named Tenmadurai and Kapadapuram. We would be hard pressed to find any of these places or geographies featured in textbooks or official accounts that circulated in the rest of India. But in the modern Tamil country, from at least the closing decades of the 19th century, such names and such geographies were becoming more visible and resonant with a gathering discourse around the lost place world in the Indian Ocean called Lemuria. Named as such by the reputable English zoologist Philip Sclater in the pages of the London-based periodical, the Quarterly Journal of Science in 1864, Lemuria was imagined as a large continent connecting Africa, India, and parts of Southeast Asia in the Mesozoic period before it drowned and disappeared, but not apparently before it allowed the passage of that early primate, the lemur, across these lands. It is important to emphasize in light of its fateful appropriations later and elsewhere that Lemuria is a child of metropolitan and modern science, which gave birth to it and nurtured it for close to a century when it participated, albeit tentatively and speculatively, in several pressing debates that preoccupied some very important men of science in Europe and in the United States to some extent about matters such as a former distribution of land in relation to water on the Earth's surface the shape of the continents and the configuration of the oceans, the geography and evolution of terrestrial and marine life forms, the birth of mankind, and the racial diversity of early humanity. Even though its existence and veracity came to be increasingly challenged in scientific circles from the early decades of the 20th century, no matter. For Lemuria found a purchase in Tamil India's labors of loss, which transformed the paleo world of the earth sciences into an affect-soaked Tamil homeland that was washed over by the cruel ocean. This discursive arrival in southern India of Lemuria, backed by the power of European and colonial science in the closing years of the 19th century, provided an opportunity for those devoted and dedicated to the Tamil language to reflect upon irrevocable loss of Tamil words and verses and of the original Tamil language, of Tamil purity, sovereignty, and unity, and not least of an ancestral Tamil homeland recalled as Kumari Nadu or Kumari Kandam, the land of the virgin goddess Kumari. 
As a consequence, Lemuria, the child of modern science, acquires a sprawling commemorative density in the Tamil country as with its help, claims of autochthony were advanced alongside assertions of civilized antiquity. Indeed, for its Tamil enthusiasts, everything in the known world, be it man or music, medicine or the martial arts, had its origins in the primeval Tamil country or Lemuria. Convinced as they were about the utter state of humiliation and neglect in which their beloved Tamil languished in colonial and to some extent post-colonial India, its devotees lived out their lives in the shadow of decline and disregard. It was their everyday experience of despair that powerfully anchors their labors of loss as they yearn for Lemuria as a former homeland, a place of promise, plenitude, and perfection that had once existed elsewhere, but no more. Hence also the intense preoccupation with its catastrophic loss, which led them to teach it in schools and colleges, and secured for Sclater's lost continent, first birthed in the pages of a Victorian scientific journal, even the patronage of the modern state in distant India. Tamil labors of loss around the vanished Lemuria were set in motion in the aftermath of the colonial geographing of India as a finite, bounded, mathematized place on modern Earth's surface. In such a place, Tamil speakers were confined to a small corner of the subcontinent in the maps and globes and geography textbooks that circulated through colonial and post-colonial administrative practices and schooling regimes, however incompletely. Further, colonial and even some nationalist racial histories rarely, if ever, granted the Tamils civilizational status, given that they were deemed primitive Dravidians and the polar opposite of the lofty Aryans of the northern realms who shared an ancestral kinship, apparently, with the colonizing Europeans. And yet the received truths of ancient Tamil literature and ancestral memories, which were recovered and revitalized, ironically but appropriately through colonial knowledge making, also reminded modern Tamils that once upon a time, several thousand years, perhaps even millennia ago, their ancestors had lived on a vast antediluvian land in great cities that had hosted learned literary academies, which had produced masterpieces of poetry and prose that were sadly washed away in a series of catastrophic floods. This was the ancestral Tamil homeland, radically disregarded by and in colonial and nationalist geographies and cartographies, but rediscovered as Lemuria by the most advanced sciences of the deep past in the modern West. The Tamil primeval past was hence confirmed as being anything but savage and primitive. The poignancy of catastrophic dispossession is heightened by the realization that there's no possibility of return to the lost homeland, now lying at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, of which, as the science of oceanography advanced over the course of the 20th century, tantalizing revelations periodically offered grim solace and satisfaction, as indeed was the case during the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, just about a decade ago. Hence also the recurrent recycling of memories of a former time when the Tamils had ranged across the world as the first humans, indeed the first civilized peoples, 
on a former continent whose presence had been revealed and confirmed by the most important of European scientists. Now, placemaking around Lemuria in the Tamil country contends with the empire of geography as it was shored up in both British India and the post-colonial nation state by turning extraterritorial, by journeying out and deep into the ocean, no less, to locate a vanished homeland that has a productive, if tendentious relationship with the lived nation of Tamil Nadu in India, as is also quite apparent in this 1981 map. I now turn to another strategy for writing back against the empire of geography, which first emerged in the very heartland of colonial India in Bengal, but soon spread across the emergent nation. Like the discourse around Lemuria, this as well has a sustained post-colonial afterlife, powerfully undergirding as it does the spatial visions of a resurgent Hindu nationalism or Hindutva into our times. But in contrast to the extraterritorial imagining around Lemuria in the Tamil country, this strategy of earth writing is relentlessly intraterritorial as it embraces the affective and the somatic in its supplementing of the Indian geobody with the gendered body of Mother India, also named Bharat Mata. I introduce you to this intraterritorial imagination through three moments from roughly around the same time in the early years of India's nationalist century. In the first moment, a character in a 1916 novel written by that distinguished poet and author, Rabindranath Tagore, insists that when he gave up his life fighting for the nation, it shall not be on the dust of some map-made land. For the geography of a country is not the whole truth. No one can give up his life for a map, end quote. Rabindranath's more fiery compatriot, Bipin Chandrapal, was just as forthright in refusing to entirely cede to the empire of geography, the terrain that was named India in his book, revealingly titled The Soul of India. Quote, the outsider knows her as India. The outsider sees her as a mere bit of earth and looks upon her as only a geographic expression and entity. But we, her children, know her even today as our mother." End quote. Around the same time, across the subcontinent in Baroda, now Vadodara, when an interlocutor asked advice on how to become patriotic from Aurobindo Ghosh, who was then a teacher, incidentally, and caught up in the regimes of pedagogic modernity, that was critical to the advance of the empire of geography, he's reported to have pointed to a wall map of India hanging in the classroom and replied, do you see this map? It is not a map, but the portrait of Bharat Mata. Its cities and mountains, rivers and jungles form her physical body. All her children are her nerves, large and small. Concentrate on Bharat as a living mother. Worship her with a ninefold bhakti or devotion. All three moments are telling, for they signify not an outright denial or rejection of the colonial geographic project, as much as an underscoring of its inadequacy for patriotic purposes. This inadequacy was to be countered and compensated by reminding Indians, in case they had forgotten this hoary truth, 
of what India really was, not the mere bit of earth or the dust of some map-made land of the empire of geography, but the living, breathing mother, Arat Mata. To return to Tagore's hero from his 1916 novel, quote, if I die fighting, it shall not be on the dust of some map-made land, but on the lovingly spread skirt. Do you know what kind of skirt? Like, like that of the earthen red sari you wore the other day with the broad blood red border, end quote. In such a somatic capture of the geobody of India, the maternal body of Mother India comes to be celebrated in prose, poetry, and especially in pictures, which show her repeatedly in the company of the map of India and the terraqueous globe, those proud artifacts of the science of cartography, but now put to use in nationalism's anti-colonial image work as guarantors ironically, of her very identity as a distinctive goddess of national territory. Such images circulated widely through a whole host of media, including calendar art and wall posters, textbook illustrations and jacket covers of nationalist pamphlets and books, newspaper cartoons and mastheads, advertisements, oils and watercolors, and even cinema across the various languages of India. Of particular importance to the argument I seek to develop here is that the artists who produce these images, who are almost always male and not always the product of formal schooling or even art education, played no small role in popularizing what Benedict Anderson refers to as the logo form of the map of India, such that it becomes recognizable and familiar to the average citizen subject especially those who did not enter the regimes of pedagogic modernity, which propped up the empire of geography. If we follow the geographer John Pickles, such men are exemplary of the legion of map makers and map users that is not part of the professional cutter of expert cartographers. Hence my use of the term barefoot cartography to characterize the work of such artists who routinely make use of scientific cartography, but also disrupt it and deflect it by deploying the anthropomorphic, the devotional, the maternal, and the patriotic. As I also signaled with the beautiful image I chose for the publicity for this talk, a contemporary painting produced by a foremost Indian artist, in the artful work of patriotic barefoot cartographers of the past century, bodies appear to matter more than boundaries, the affective more than the abstract. So in their work, Mother India fills up the map of India or merges partially with it or is shown seated or standing on it. Most destabilizing of all, she even dispenses with the map entirely and stands in for the geobody of India, her full sensuous form reproducing the geographical form of the nation gifted to it by the empire of geography. Undoubtedly, the barefoot cartographer's work is in contested intimacy with scientific cartography as he dislodges the latter's highly formalized form from scientific context of production and use and re-embeds it, sometimes to the point only of faint resemblance in his own pictorial productions. 
In doing so, the empire of geography's terrain of scientific calculation is transformed into a field of patriotic care, a land that has the capacity to produce sentiments of belonging and longing to the point of the sacrifice of life and limb. Such images suggest that for the patriotic Indian, the map of India, indispensable to the empire of geography, is not adequate in and of itself for mobilizing patriots to offer bodily sacrifice to recall Tagore's hero from 1916. As such, the map had to be supplemented by something else, which more often than not is the gendered divinized form of Mother India. I want to underscore that barefoot cartography is not antagonistic to scientific cartography in any kind of simplistic manner. Rather, after the fashion of so much in colonial India, where the artifacts of empire and science were simultaneously desired and disavowed, patriotic earth writing embraces the cartographic and geographic form of the country, but also pushes it in directions not intended for it by either secular science or the state. This is not to say that there are no dissenting voices, of which there were many, reminding us that the empire of geography had all manner of native enthusiasts and foot soldiers, including and most importantly, the post-colonial state. In the words of Bharati Dasan, the poet ideologue of the rationalist Dravidian movement, who asked in 1931, quote, in the days when we did not know the shape of India, it might have been a woman. However, have not the British taught us about the geographical shape of India as early as the fourth class? Even this has not driven out the blind faith and old-fashioned superstitions of these patriots. How can a country constituted by stone and soil, rivers and forests, mountains and gorges be thought to be a woman? You can hear the echoes of the words of the missionary Murdoch, who I quoted earlier, right? A few years later, in 1936, Jawaharlal Nehru, the man who would go on to become the prime minister of an independent India a decade later, as well worried over the mystifying corporeality that saturated the imagination of Indian national territory among many of his fellow citizens when he observed, quote, it is curious how one cannot resist the tendency to give an anthropomorphic form to a country, such as the force of habit and early associations, end quote. What Nehru missed in such an observation is the extent to which what he labeled the anthropomorphic habit or tendency took repeated recourse to the scientific and the cartographic as it wrote back against the more disenchanting claims of the empire of geography in whose shadow it surely operated, but whose consolidation is periodically interrupted by other memories, other forms. For it's not just Mother India who was thrown into the company of the map and the globe, but also all manner of figures from the growing nationalist pantheon, including and especially Gandhi, and indeed Nehru himself. Over time, the iconography of the proliferating gods of the Hindu pantheon also comes to be seriously updated with paraphernalia drawn from the world of science, especially the empire of geography. So in a poster published in 1927, the half-monkey, half-human Hanuman with his trademark club weapon stands defiantly on a terrestrial globe 
which is not suspended in a mathematized cosmos as modern Earth ought to be, but immersed in a primeval ocean. The globe is outlined, as you can see, with the map of India and even showing a couple of its principal rivers. Hanuman's legs straddle the map spread of India, its geobody, even as his own body is cartographed by the globe in the map. In another poster published in Ahmedabad, the artist T.B. Vati places the Hindu trinity in the company of the terrestrial globe, prominently centered on the Indian geobody. Shiva's feet are firmly planted on the Indian map, making it his own. Not least in Bansiwala, the man with the flute, that all-important Puranic deity, Krishna, sits securely on a terraqueous globe on which the mapped shape of India is outlined, his feet resting on a lotus suggestively placed at its southern tip. In all such prints, going back to the early years of the 20th century and continuing down to our time, the divine bodies of Hinduism's many gods are unambiguously locked to the geobody of India, itself in turn the most visible and material gift of the empire of geography as it operated in the subcontinent. Such pictures suggest that scientific map knowledge is hijacked to ensure the survival of the gods rather than their exile even as the gods themselves are used to popularize the gifts of modern science to a largely illiterate populace who did not go to school. In turn, and with the help of modern cartographic instruments, courtesy the empire of geography, Hinduism's ancient deities, rather than becoming irrelevant or redundant, are rejuvenated as members of the emergent nation's geobody, lending it their aura, their powers, and most importantly, their divinity. The postmodern geographer Dennis Cosgrove has observed that the terrestrial globe with its geometric grid of latitudes and longitudes universalizes space, privileging no specific point, extending a non-hierarchic net across the sphere. Yet in these images, India, itself a specific product of the empire of geography's worlding project, as I have argued, is rendered the chosen land of the gods themselves, centered as these are on the outline map of the nation, which frequently appears as the only territory that matters on modern Earth's surface. The program of the Enlightenment, wrote Horkheimer in Adorno, famously, was the disenchantment of the world, the dissolution of myths, and the substitution of knowledge for fancy. Yet the contrary manner in which scientific cartography is deployed in these proliferating god pictures of Hindu India demonstrates how the European Enlightenment project has also led to the revival of old myths and the return of fancy in colonial and post-colonial India. Rather than heathenism being demolished as many a rationalist, both British and Indian, had zealously hoped, the gods come back even more realistically, exuberantly and potently, transformed from sectarian Hindu deities into nationalized Indian divinities through the mediation of the very scientific knowledge and objects that ought to have banished them from the lives and livelihoods of their devotees. And what about modern Earth, that principal protagonist of the empire of geography, as it continues to circulate in a context in which 
the anthropomorphic, the devotional and the maternal and the patriotically recurrently erupt to interrupt the work of science. I offer you two concluding images which offer two complementary responses. An artist called M. Ramaya painted an image that was subsequently mass printed in 1953 with the title in English, Bhudevi, literally Earth Goddess. Bhudevi is pictured simultaneously as a four-armed Hindu goddess and as a terrestrial globe on whose surface India is clearly worlded. In the work, the artist is taking no chances, it seems. Indeed, if we are to go by the title of the print, the viewer is called upon to see the gridded globe itself as the goddess Earth. There is a strategic ambiguity at play here that is worth underscoring. The print brings to mind an insightful observation by philosopher of science, Bruno Latour, now late Bruno Latour, that we are living in times which he, of course, famously declared have never been modern, in which we see, quote, a fabulous population of new images, fresh icons, rejuvenated mediators, greater flows of media, more powerful ideas, stronger idols, end quote. Ramaya's Bhudevi is one such stronger idol, partaking of the powers and enchantments of two beguiling imaginations, mythic and modern. In this regard, she may not be alone. In the age of climate change, global warming, green ethics, and not least ecofeminism, we are witness to the resurgence of other such animated, generally female beings like Pakamama and Gaia albeit in radically transformed terms, even in the writings of some heterodox scientists who have not hesitated to use the gendered language of anthropomorphism. Quote, Gaia is the great trickster of our present history, writes Latour. Not surprisingly, quote, we seem to have great difficulty housing her inside our global view and even more difficulty housing ourselves inside her cybernetic feedbacks, end quote. Reflecting on James Lovelace's Gaia theory, it's self-rebuked by mainstream scientists for its vague mysticism and for flirting with metaphors of the divine, for which reason it was also embraced by its admirers. Latour concluded his short essay in which he too seemed to be waiting for Gaia. That's the title of his essay. Quote, the idea at once daring and modest is that we might convince Gaia that since we now weigh so much upon her shoulders and hers on ours, we might entertain some sort of a deal or a ritual, end quote. Some years after Latour's essay was published in 2011, the controversial Tamil politician H.R. Raja gave us a preview, perhaps, of what one such deal or ritual might look like in the Indian context one hot burning summer in 2019, when photographs of him cooling down earth by pouring water over a mounted school globe, that master object of scientific pedagogic modernity as I've characterized it, circulated on social media, attracting both attention and attack. On the face of it, Bhudevi, the earth goddess's female and sacred form, appears to have clearly conceded 
to the inanimate sphere of scientific modernity and the empire of geography. All the same, it is worth noting in Raja's action, the transfer of rites and rituals from the sacral body to the secular object placed on a lotus-shaped pedestal. I don't know if you can catch it in the, the bottom of the slide there. It's actually sitting on a pedestal that's shaped like a lotus, which is what many traditional Hindu icons are placed on in their iconography. So geopiety has perforce to resort to some unexpected salvational strategies in the time of modern earth in modern India. In turn, the empire of geography's earth writing, using the protocols and procedures of modern science, is shown up for what it is, a fragile, all-too-human achievement, which may be indispensable, but is nevertheless inadequate in the face of other memories and other imperatives of being and belonging on our planet. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.